Let's pray. Your bountiful care, what tongue can recite. And Lord, you are so faithful and so good, and we love you, and we ask that you would once more meet us underneath your word as we're gathered here over the next hour. Father, would you cause your spirit to be with us and to cause your word to go deep within us and to change us. And Father, may we responsibly and faithfully do our part. And Lord, may we be characterized by faithfulness for the remainder of this year and for the remainder of our days before you. And Lord, we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this morning we come to the end of our study of this very practical section of Scripture. And it is the end, Lord willing, unless something crazy happens while I'm preaching. Um, this will be our last sermon in this section of Scripture. And we've camped here for a while because I wanted to spend some time thinking with you about spiritual health. And we've looked here in verses 1 to 7, looking at Paul's directives to a young pastor named Timothy. And you'll remember, just I'll refresh you a bit, that Timothy had been given a, a, a large, important job to do, and that this job, this ministry, had started to take its toll on Timothy. And as he carried out his God-given assignment, he found himself weakening spiritually. And of course, this concerned the Apostle Paul, and so Paul wrote to Timothy to help him renew his strength and fulfill the ministry that God had given him to do. And what we're given in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 is something like a step-by-step guide to get back on your feet, spiritually speaking. Uh, you've all found yourself, I'm sure, on your back, spiritually speaking. And you look up and you think, how in the world did I get here? Well, this little section of Scripture is a guide, as it were, a step-by-step guide to get back up, off your back, onto your feet, and fulfill the ministry that God has given you to do. And the first step that Paul gives us here is to draw our strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. When you're at the bottom... You don't try and sort of whip yourself back up, pick yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. Um, you know, that'll never work. Uh, you'll stay there, and you know, you'll lay on your back trying to just get your feet down there to lift yourself up. It won't work. You've got to get your, your eyes off of yourself and onto the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the key. That's the secret. When you're spiritually low, you've got to recognize that your standing before God is not based upon your current posture. Your standing before God is based upon the life and death and merit of Jesus Christ. So you're on your back, spiritually speaking, but you're on your feet, seated with the Lord in the heavenly places. That's the reality that you have to get your eye on when you're down spiritually. You have to strengthen yourself on grace. Uh, so that's the first directive. Get over yourself, essentially. Get over yourself and get your eyes off of your weaknesses, off of your failures, and enrich your heart 
on the good news of God's unmerited favor to you in Christ. And you'll find as you feast on that reality that your vitality starts to return and you have energy that you hadn't had in a long time. And you're ready and willing to get up and to do the work God's given you to do. That's step number one. Step number two is to prioritize ordinary obedience. That's the very last thing you want to do when you're on your back spiritually. You don't want to obey. You don't want to do anything. I don't feel like doing anything. Right? You're feelings-oriented at that point. And God has not created us to be feelings-oriented people. We are to be commandment-love-oriented people. And so when you're on your back, uh, you strengthen yourself by grace, and then you start to prioritize ordinary obedience. And that's what we see in verse 2. You want to remember the most basic, ordinary instructions that God has given you. What's the bottom line instruction? Like find the low-hanging fruit and do that thing, whether you feel like it or not. Bible reading, I don't feel like it. Do it. Prayer, I don't feel like it. Do it. Like meditation, I don't feel like it. I don't even know what that means. Well, I'm going to help you this sermon. Um, you don't feel like it? Do it. Uh, evangelism, whoever feels like evangelism. I can think of six of you that do. Um, you don't feel like it? Do it. Be faithful. Prioritize ordinary obedience. You don't want to do the laundry? I don't feel like doing it? Do it. You don't want to mow the grass? You don't feel like doing it? No one ever feels like that. Maybe six of you do. Um, do it. Do what you know you need to do, the bottom line requirement that God has placed on you, and you'll find your vitality start to return. And then step number three is get to help you sort of get yourself back up on your feet, spiritually speaking, is to reframe your life according to biblical expectations. Recalibrate your expectations. That's verses 3 to 6. Most of us come into the Christian life thinking that life with Jesus is going to be much easier than life without Jesus. I will say life with Jesus is much better than life without Jesus. But ease, that is not what Jesus promised us. He promised us uh, that life would be hard and that it, was, it would be through many toils and tribulations that sinners, saints, turned saints, would make it into the kingdom. He promised us that in life we would have trouble. That's what he told us. Now, if you go through life thinking it's going to be easy, Jesus is going to just make it all smooth, and all of a sudden, you get into the Christian life and you find, wow, this is, was a lot hard, easier being a pagan than to be a Christian. And that may be true. But I'll tell you, the joy that you find in obeying Christ is incomprehensible. And Jesus never promised that it would be easy. In fact, the Bible sets the expectations, the framework that every Christian ought to have. Verses 3 to 6 gives us at least three metaphors. The first being the Christian life the expectation you ought to have about your Christianity is that it's like a war and that you're a soldier engaged in active duty. So, verses 3 and 4, you need to have a wartime soldier's mindset. And then in verse 5, Paul reminds us that the Christian needs to live with the expectations of an Olympic athlete. We've got to train and labor earnestly if you're going to win the crown. No one, I don't know if you realize this or not, 
but no one ever accidentally wins a gold medal. You don't fall into an Olympic competition. It doesn't happen that way. If you're going to compete at the highest level, you've got to put in the work and dedication and the diligence and the focus required on the front end for you to compete at the highest level. And, And the only people who win the crown are the people who train themselves for the competition. Christianity is similar. You, we have a crown in heaven to win. And the only people who win the crown are the people who are given themselves to be trained for godliness. And, we saw, they're the people who are competing according to God's rule book. Right? They're not bending the rules when they're tired. They don't find the excuse, well, I know God says to, um, you know, to work for my family and, and make money and make sure they're provided for, but I just don't feel like going to work today. So I'm going to clock in. Clock, I'm not going to clock in. I'm going to stay home. I don't feel like loving my wife today. Well, I'm just going to take it off today. No, the, the rule book is the rule book. The rule, the rule book is set by God, and it's inflexible, and we must obey it. So the athlete, the farmer, sort of, I mean, the athlete and the soldier sort of frame the Christian's expectations. And then the, the third uh, sort of recalibration of expectations is in verse 6. That is, the Christian should live, you should live your life with the expectations of the first century farmer. The farmer's life is not marked by all the excitement and glory and joys of the athlete and the soldier. He just sort of plods away in obscurity, doing the same thing day in and day out. However, the farmer perseveres, patiently endures, like Job. He patiently endures because his eye is fixed on the harvest. The Christian does what he knows he needs to be doing because his eye is fixed on eternity, on heaven. Now all of that brings us finally to verse 7. It's taken us five weeks to get to verse 7, but here we are. And this is the fourth directive, which I've summarized, you can see it in your notes, as do your part. Do your part. And I think that summation will make sense to you. I hope it does. If not, I've failed in this sermon. Uh, I think it will make sense to you at the conclusion of this sermon. I think you'll get what I'm saying, and I think what Paul is saying by the end of this sermon. I hope that is the case. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7. Verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You may be seated. So look with me again at verse 7. As Paul draws this little section to a close, he says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I think the ESV captures it best with the translation, think. 
think over what I say. That's the command. Think. Think over what I say. The word here, think, means to grasp or comprehend something on the basis of careful thought. Careful thought. So this is really, this final verse in this section, is really an admonition for Timothy to think carefully and deliberately about all that Paul has just said in verses 1 to 6. It's an admonition for Paul, for Timothy rather, to not just let the stone skip across the water, but to give careful consideration to what it is that Paul has just said. Now, the implication, of course, is that Timothy has not been thinking the way he should be thinking. So his thinking then needs to be renewed along the lines of Paul's directives. So fundamentally, we could argue, and I will argue, that the reason Timothy's spiritual flame was growing dim was not because he was in difficult ministry circumstances, but because his thinking was out of line with God's reality. So Timothy's issue was not outside pressure. Timothy's issue was really a matter of his thinking. The problem was not the burdensome ministry. We tend to think that way. If I could just get out of this burdensome scenario, if these people would just leave, if that boss would just quit, or if that, you know, whatever. We tend to think that way. But Timothy's problem, and your problem, is not the burdensomeness of your ministry. That was not the source of his problem because we know that wasn't the reality. We know that the problem wasn't Timothy's difficult ministry because who else had a very difficult ministry? Yeah, if it became, you know, who's got the more difficult set of circumstances? Who's going to win that battle? But Paul's not, yeah, Jesus, that's right. Someone said Jesus. But Paul's not moaning about his circumstances and Paul's not on his back spiritually. Paul is flourishing. And it's like he's skipping from one synagogue to the next to get killed. You know, he gets stoned and he's drug out of the synagogue. He gets back up and he runs to the next synagogue and preaches. Circumstances were not the problem. The problem was Timothy's mindset. Something had gone awry in Timothy's thinking. And I want to make just a, a point here, a principle that we all need to understand. Spiritual decline doesn't occur because of what is happening on the outside. Spiritual decline does not occur because of what's happening in my circumstances. Spiritual decline is always a matter of the heart. Always. It's always a matter of the heart, the mind. And we'll unpack that a little more. But when you grow weak spiritually and you find yourself losing your spiritual vigor, there is no one to blame but yourself. When you are spiritually weak, when you have lost your spiritual vitality, there is no one to blame but yourself. You can't look at God and say, the ministry you gave me. You can't look at God and say, this serpent deceived me, just like Adam and Eve. You can't blame shift the responsibility of your spiritual decline. 
Spiritual decline is always an issue of the heart, and it has everything to do with what you are focused on. Everything to do with what has been occupying your thinking. That's because there's an unbreakable link between the the way you think and the way you live. Let me show you what I mean. Scripture presents man as a two-part being. We see this all the way back in Genesis 2, verse 7, where God, remember, He creates man from the dirt, and then He breathes into this physical man-shaped lump of clay. He breathes into him, and verse 7 says that it is the breath of life. And the man becomes a living being or a living soul. So body and soul, two parts. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus referred, or reference rather, to man as existing in, a, in two parts as well, a body and a soul. Don't fear the person who can kill the body only, but fear the person who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul references man as a two-part being as well. He speaks to the outer man, which is the physical body, and the inner man. And this is the way the Bible conceives of man, as a duality, as a body and a soul. Now, the, throughout Scripture, the soul is variously called the heart, the spirit, the inner man. But there's still two parts here. And the Bible's description is two parts of man, body, soul. And we know that intuitively, right? You need sort of, I don't want to get too weird here, but if you sort of reflect on your existence, you have a body and then you have an invisible part of you. Right? This is what the Bible teaches as well. The theological word here, and this will be on the exam, is a psychosomatic unity. Psycho or suke, which is the word soul, and soma is the word body. Psychosomatic unity, a body-soul unity. And as I said, the inner man throughout Scripture is variously called the soul, the spirit, and the heart. These are all references to the inner man. And just, I know some of you are thinking, what about... The great commandment. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that three things? Well, those are all references to the inner man. So Jesus is saying you're to love God with all of your inner man. Everything you have from the inside is to be directed towards God and love. Okay. Scripture then teaches that man is a body-soul duality that's united, and the outer man and the inner man are linked in such a way that the outer man affects the inner man and the inner man affects the outer man. Scripture prioritizes, in this duality, Scripture places a high value on both realities. You are a body and a soul. That's what it means to be a human. But Scripture prioritizes the inner man. Of course, that's not to the neglect of the outer man, the physical. But Scripture presents to us the reality that God has created us as human beings to be led from the inside out. Biblically speaking... The inner man or the heart is what you might call the seat of self-government. Uh, it's mission control center. It's the oval office of your being is your inner man, is your heart. Because the heart, the inner man, is where thinking occurs, where affecting or affections or feeling occurs, and then also where volition or motivations occur. I'm going to show you this from a couple texts. 
The heart, the inner man, is where thinking occurs. Now, we're thinking the brain is where thinking happens. Okay, but Scripture conveys it, the heart, as the inner man, and thinking is an issue of the inner man. We see this in Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his what? His heart. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. All right, so thinking then, according to this verse and others, occurs in the heart, not the blood-pumping organ, right? the inner man. But there's something else that takes place in the heart beside thinking, and that is in verse 6 of Genesis 6-5. And so the Lord saw the wickedness of the thoughts of the intents of man's heart. The Lord saw, or the Lord rather, was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and the Lord was grieved in his heart. So grief happens in the heart. Right? That's an affection or a feeling. So we've got thinking, we've got feelings happening in the heart, and then if we jump to Hebrews 4.12... There's a third feature of the heart we see in that passage, and it reads this way. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Those are things that are indivisible, essentially. But the word of God can pierce what is indivisible, and able to judge the thoughts and what? And intentions of the heart. Those are motivations, intentions, that's motivations. So if we put Genesis 6, 5 and 6 and Hebrews 4, 12 and a plethora of other passages that we don't have time to go to, if we put these together, we see that the heart, the inner man, your inner man, is where thinking happens, where feeling or affecting happens, and where your motivations reside. And because of that because our thoughts and our motives and our affections come out of our heart, you know what else comes out of our heart? Our behavior. These are the things that drive what you do. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Right? The river of your life has its source in the fountain of your heart. That's Proverbs 4.23. Now, I want you to turn to Mark 7. It's important that, uh, this is an important concept I want you to see. In Mark chapter 7, we see the same reality. Jesus, in this passage, has just finished up a discussion with the scribes and the Pharisees about hand-washing rituals. And Lord willing, we'll make our way to Mark 7 sometime. But Jesus had just finished this discussion with them about what is the source of impurity. The Pharisees were saying, well, it's the hands. You didn't do proper hand-washing rituals. And Jesus says, no, it's not dirty hands that is the source of impurity and pure living. It's a dirty heart. Right? That's Mark 7, verse 20. He says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For, notice this, for from within... Out of the heart of men. Now what happens in the heart? Thinking, feeling, doing, essentially. Thinking, affecting, motivations. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, 
and foolishness. Where do those come from? The heart, verse 23. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The point here Jesus is making is that what is in your heart, if it's fornicating thoughts, selfish thoughts, actually all of these descriptions, what's striking about Mark 7, 21-23, if you categorize each one of these sins that flow out of the heart, all of them are self-oriented. It's striking. Why does a man uh, commit adultery? It's not because he's thinking about how he wants to serve and love his wife and his family. Why does a man steal? Well, it's not because he wants to do good to other people. Why does a man murder? That's because he wants immediate vindication, justice. Why does he covet? Well, because he wants what you have. He's not thinking about giving to others. All of these are marks of self-oriented living. And there are really two modes of living. You can live for yourself or you can live for God's pleasure. Now, the point, of course, is that where the heart ends behavior begins. Where the heart ends, your actions, your life really begins. And in the economy of the inner man, inner man, which is where we think, affect, and our motivations lie, in the economy of the inner man, the mind, your thinking, is to be in charge. In the economy of the inner man, the mind is to take charge. The mind leads... The affections follow, and the result is behavior. And when the government of the inner man, I love the Puritans talked about having good government of the soul. When the government of the inner man is functioning according to God's design, note this, your thinking will be fixed on truth, which will then raise your affections for God, which will then propel you to act in obedience to God. Thinking fixed on truth, affections cultivated or stimulated, excited by that truth, and then a life propelled by that to obey God. This is the way that things functioned with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Their minds were fixed on truth, controlled by truth, and so the consequence was they lived in bliss, had joy, sweet communion with the Lord, uninterrupted, Because their minds were fixed on God, their affections were inflamed for God, and their lives were lived in obedience to God. That's the ideal. But what happened? Why is life not that way? Well, we know that. Why don't you flip back to Genesis 3 with me? Something happened to disrupt this sort of government of the inner man. Up to this point, in Eden, all was well. Adam and Eve had their minds fixed only on the truth. Their affections for God were high. They lived in complete obedience to God until verse chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, what is, what, think about the heart. Think about the inner man. Thinking, affecting, volition, actions. What dimension is Satan attacking there? 
Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It's an attack on her thinking. Right, what has God said? It's, you know, show me chapter and verse. What has he said? Right, it's a thinking exercise. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It's an attack really on truth. It's an attack on her understanding, on her thinking. And Satan knows that if he can get her thinking wrongly, her affections and her volition, her actions will follow. And that's exactly what we see. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. This is logical discussion, rational. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. This is a debate. It's a logical back and forth debate. What is the word of God? It's a mental exercise. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he's trying to get Eve to question and be suspicious of God. Again, it's mental. He's leading Eve away in her thinking. He's deceiving her. He's trying to trick her into believing a lie. Note this. He's trying to trick her so that her affections will be turned from God and on to getting this fruit. And then, if her affections are there, disobedience will quickly follow. In this sense, Eve's thinking, her mind is like the guardian of her inner man. It's the guardian of her soul. If Satan can get the sentinel of Eve's soul to do a lousy job, then he can come in, stir up her affections, and she will act in disobedience. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw, just think this is affection, desire language. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's actually more of a logical deduction. Oh yeah, the tree is good for food. Thinking. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Wow, it looks really good. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This is the raising of her affections for it. Notice what she does. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Eve believed the lie. Her affections were raised in the wrong direction, and so she acted sinfully. That's the way it works. That's the way it works in your life. That's the way it works in my life. The mind leads. It's the guardian of the inner man. The mind leads. And if the guardian is deceived, believes a lie, the affections will follow. And then the will will quickly follow behind that. And we, we often frame it in this sentence. We do what we do because we want what we want. That's a simply saying what I've just been saying from Genesis 3, essentially. Eve wanted what Satan was selling because her mind had been tricked into thinking it was right. She was duped into believing a lie, so her desires were disoriented, and then her behavior quickly followed suit. And that's the problem of humanity. Since this point in time, Genesis 3, we are all born with a defective guardian of the soul. Our minds are disoriented. The mind is what keeps watch on the soul, on the inner man, 
And every one of us were given by your dad, Merry Christmas, or happy birthday rather, uh, a defective guardian of the soul. Your mind is not what it ought to be. That's called the noetic effects of sin. Not Noah in the flood, but naeo is the Greek word. And wouldn't you know that this is the word in 2 Timothy 2 verse 7. Think over what I say. The word is naete, which is the imperative form of thinking. Think about it. Think over what I say. Because, Timothy, the problem is you have a defect. You have a defect. And if you are not carefully guarding your inner man, you will be duped into believing a lie. Since Adam's fall, we all have a thinking problem. Our minds are prone to believe our circumstances over the Word of God. We're prone to believe our feelings over the Word of God. We're prone to believe our intuition over the Word of God. The reality is that if you exalt anything above God's Word in the economy of your thinking, the result will be misplaced affections and a life of disobedience. Now, I hope that you at least can see a little bit the correlation between all that I've just said and Paul's imperative to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. But let, me, let me make it explicit here. Paul understood that thinking determined behavior. He understood that. And because he understood that, he knew that Timothy's spiritual decline was not because Timothy was some poor victim. Timothy was not a victim of his circumstances. The circumstances were the occasion for which Timothy's misplaced thinking and affections were demonstrated. This is the way trials work. God brings pressure in your life. It's not sin. This is just God bringing pressure in your life. And the pressure of life sort of squeezes out what you're really thinking and wanting in your heart. This is why when you're late and your anxiety is up and you're, you, know, you get short with your children or whatever, you know, that is pressure. And what comes out of your heart is there because Mark 7 says it was in there. Right? What comes out of your heart when the pressure is on is in your heart. And it's a reminder for us that we need to change. And Timothy here was feeling the pressure of his circumstances. He was not a victim because Paul had the same circumstances, but he was responding faithfully in obedience. So Timothy was on the slow train to spiritual discouragement, not because of his outside circumstances, but because of his internal problems. He was thinking wrongly about his life and ministry, and somewhere along the way, Timothy had stopped conceiving of his life as a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, He had stopped renewing his mind according to the grace of God in Christ, and he had begun thinking wrongly about his life. And the consequence of that was spiritual despair and discouragement. So the remedy? Well, the remedy is verse 7. Think over what I say. Think over what I say. A thinking problem requires a thinking solution. Timothy needed to get his eyes off of all the people around him. That he sort of, you know, if he was like us at all, 
Uh, the temptation is to say they're the problem. Right, God, if you could just sort of you know, lift them up, send them to Mars, my life would be better. Um, but Timothy needed to get his eyes off of them, onto Christ, and he needed to focus his mind on the Word of God and these metaphors that Paul had given him. He needed to win the battle of the mind if he wanted to regain his spiritual vitality. And so do you. If you want to get back up, you've got to win the battle of the mind. So much of our warfare, the Christian's warfare, is just between our ears. That's the battle. That's the battle. Turn with me to Romans 12. I just want you to see this. Romans chapter 12. The Christian's fight is a fight of the mind. It's a fight to believe the truth rather than a lie. And that battle happens right here. This is why Scripture compels us to renew our minds and to be led by the truth. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers or brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The word spiritual here is literally logical or rational. Paul is urging the Christians to present their bodies to God, that's the body, the outer man, to God as a living sacrifice. Right? You see that? Verse 1. But here's my question for you. Who is doing the presentation of the body? Who's going to present your body as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable? Who does that? Verse 1. I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical, spiritual, inner man service of worship. This is why it's your mind, it's your thinking, it's your inner man that presents your body. It's a strange analogy, but it's reality. It presents your body to God as a, as a worshiping sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice. That's why in verse 2 it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If your mind is the one that has to lead the body and offer it to God as a reasonable service of worship, your mind better be renewed by Scripture. Because you're not going to offer your body up on the altar unless your mind is led and renewed by the Word of God. Another way to put that is, you're not going to share the gospel with that cashier unless your mind has been renewed according to the Word of God. And you're going to control your lips and speak what you need to speak because you know what God would have you to do. You see that? The will of God is that you would put your body, your outer man, in subjection by the inner man to serve the Lord as a living sacrifice. And for that to happen, the mind must be led by truth. It must be renewed. And the lies that you believe must be tossed out and replaced with biblical truth. And as you believe that truth, your affections towards God will rise and you'll begin to love the things that He loves and hate the things He hates and you will obey Him with your life. Wherever your mind leads, 
your life will follow. Now, with all of that in mind, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul concludes this little section with an admonition for Timothy to think, to think biblically. It's not enough for him to simply hear what Paul has to say. Merely hearing the truth will never do. Reading your Bible every morning on its own will never do. Coming to church, hearing sermons year after year, week after week, will never do. Timothy was not going to be helped by the mere hearing of truth. Which is why Paul says, think over what I say. He needed to hear the truth and then he needed to give careful and deliberate consideration to what Paul has just said. Preaching, teaching, book reading, sermons, they are not a silver bullet. They are not going to fix all your problems. These four directives, or three directives, are not enough for Timothy. He needs to take what he's heard, and then he needs to give careful, deliberate thought to that truth. He needs to apply it, bring it to bear on every dimension of his life. Just like you've been doing this the past few weeks, and I've been doing as well. In what ways am I like a farmer? In what ways am I like a soldier? In what ways do I need to change my living and start thinking with a wartime mentality? That's the practice of meditation. You take the Word of God and you bring it to bear on your life. You put your theology to work. You sort of take it off the bookshelf of your mind. So we all have that. We have this bookshelf in our mind. And some of you have filled those shelves with theological tomes. And you know all this rich, reformed, faithful theological reality. You have your bookshelves of your mind filled up. What Paul is exhorting Timothy to do here is take that down and give careful, deliberate consideration to those truths. Bring them to bear on every feature of your life, Timothy. Put them to work. Let me get a little more practical with you, if that wasn't practical enough. Thomas Watson, let me say, step back just a minute. What Paul is encouraging us and and directing us towards is what the Bible calls meditation, biblical meditation. It says careful, deliberate thinking about theological truth. Thomas Watson called biblical meditation the bridge between knowing and doing. It's the bridge between knowing and doing. Knowing is what you get when you simply hear something and retain it. It goes to the bookshelf of your mind. You know it to be true. You assent to it as true. But often, you can live your life and that truth, those truths on the bookshelf of your mind, have zero impact on your life. You know the truth in the sense that it's on that bookshelf, but it has nothing to do with the way you live. Biblical meditation is pulling it down and musing on it. Thinking on it consistently so that it begins to affect the way you live. It's crossing the bridge between knowing and living. And the only way to cross that bridge is through biblical meditation, through intentional, deliberate renewal of your mind. Okay, now what does that look like? Let me show you a couple of passages. Psalm 1, verse 2. You can flip there really quickly. It's in the middle of your Bible. You can do it really quickly. What does it look like to think deliberately and carefully about biblical truth? 
to such an extent that it transforms the way we live and excites and flames our affections for the Lord. Looks like Psalm 1 verse 2, where the text says that the blessed or happy man is the man whose delight is in the law of Yahweh, or the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now just notice, this is a, something like a chiasm. So delight and meditate are compared to one another. They're in parallel relationships. So delighting and meditating are very close synonyms. You know, what you delight in is what you meditate on. It's what you think about. And what you think about is what you will delight in. So it's a good, maybe a good sort of uh, diagnosis for why it is that you keep committing X, Y, or Z sin. What are you delighting in? What are you thinking about? What's, what, what are you feeling, filling your mind with? Because if you fill your mind with it, your affections will be inflamed and your will will follow. And the word meditate here, Psalm 1 verse 2, has the idea of internally, in the inner man, brooding over something. It's an internal brooding over the law. And he says it happens day and night. So meditation then, is an internal brooding over the Word of God. How are you doing? How are you doing? Do you find yourself internally brooding over the Word of God, or are you brooding over your neighbor's behavior? <laughs> what are you thinking about? Right. What are you brooding over? What is, what is it that's sort of floating around, and you're sort of keeping it up in your own inner man? Well, there's another word in Psalm 119, verse 97, for meditate. In English, it comes across as the same word, meditation, but it's just two different words in Hebrew. And this word has the idea of thoughtful contemplation. Thoughtful contemplation. That's Psalm 119, verse 97. Again, there's a parallelism here. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I love your law, and it's my thoughtful contemplation all the day. Right? What you love will be your thoughtful contemplation. Right? What you thoughtfully contemplate will be what you love. That's meditation. The word in the New Testament expands, the word for meditate expands to include words like dwell on, think, consider, ponder, mulling over truth is essentially what it is. Mulling over truth and bringing it to bear on your own life. Now all of these words, of course, give us an idea of what biblical meditation looks like. And according to 2 Timothy 2.7, this type of biblical meditation is not optional. And that's what I want us to get. This is not an optional Christian practice. You, you know, it's, it's no more optional than Bible intake. And this is a directive from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, to us. Think over what I say. Like Timothy, it's not enough for you to simply be told, be strong in grace. Prioritize responsibilities. Restore your right expectations. That's not enough. You are to, like Timothy, give yourself to biblical meditation. To take Paul's directives and mull over them for a lengthy amount of time. All of us, you, you have in your mind enough theological truth, most of you, to sustain you for a lifetime. 
you have on the bookshelves of your mind enough truth to sustain you for the rest of your life. But we kind of jump from one resource to the next, don't we? Maybe this will be the silver bullet. Oh, Sinclair Ferguson just released a new book. I need to read that and see if that's going to help me. Right? So-and-so, Biblical Counselor. This is the new one. I need it. You have, most likely, most of you have on your bookshelf in your mind all that you need theologically already. What you don't do is pull it down and mull over it. And I know you don't do that because I don't do it as much as I should. Right? This is where we need to cross the bridge between what we know and what we do. And if you find yourself on your back, spiritually speaking, it's a good opportunity for you to sort of look over your life. Am I reading these, all of these books thinking they're going to solve all my problems? And it's going to be a quick, easy fix. What's wrong there? What's an expectation issue? It's a thinking problem. I'm thinking wrongly about how I change according to God's word. I think God's going to zap me and make a quick change for me. But once I come to God's word, I find no. Christian living is like plowing a field. It's slow, painful progress. And what's striking to me, and I'm just going to jump over all of my notes here. Um, I'm going to get back to 2 Timothy. What's striking to me is the way that Paul says this in verse 7. He says, consider what I say for. For what, Paul? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It won't come, Timothy, unless you do your part. What is my part, Paul? Meditate. Mull over truth. It's careful, deliberate thinking. And as you do that, the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Now, this word understanding is a really interesting word. It has the idea of two streams coming together. And what I have found as I was working through this, and I just cut this out of my notes this morning because I didn't have enough time to say it. But I'm going to say it now, and I'm going to cut all this stuff out. <laughs> what, what you find when you think about this word is reality. So each one of us have these two streams of reality happening. Right? If you're the stream of reality, one being what you think ought to be. And then what you the other stream is reality for you. Right? If you think God promised in his word that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise, or happy. But your reality is that you are poor, um, sick, um, and a fool. <laughs> right? If your reality is different than what you think God has said he would give you, What's that going to do for you? You're going to have these two streams of living, and you're always going to feel like you're living underneath what you ought to be doing. If God said he would make me healthy, why am I sick? And there's dissonance there. And that's discouraging, and you go down and down and down. But what Paul is saying here, think over what I say. This is the stream of biblical reality. Get that stream in line, Timothy. And what you'll find is, as you muse on this, you'll realize that the stream of your reality and the stream of what God has said are actually one. And when that happens, you will have tranquility. Because you'll understand, this is not out of the ordinary. This is what God told me would happen. right? This is His Word. He said it would be this way. He said it would be like war. 
And he said life would be tough. He said that fruit would come slow. If you live your Christian life thinking God's going to zap you and you haven't been zapped, life's going to be hard. It's not going to make sense. But if you align your thinking according to God's word and you think about your reality, those two streams come together. And that's how the Apostle Paul could endure. That's how he made it. That's how he wasn't beat up. I mean, he was beat up, but not spiritually. The outer man was wasting away, but the inner man was doing... What was happening in the inner man? Right. Day by day, it was renewed. And this is, this is Paul's directive. This is what he asks us to do. This is what he calls us to. He says, think over what I say. So throw out you know, all the, the wrong thinking about your life and reform it according to God's word and God's expectations. And then you'll find... Actually, life is full of joy because you know what's coming before it ever hits you. You know how it all ends and you have heaven to live for and heaven will make amends for all of it. So when you're down, that's what you need. You need to reform your thinking according to the word of God and you'll find uh, that as you do that, uh, like Jeremiah, as you muse, you'll find the fire burns. That's reality. So my encouragement to you is to give yourself to musing, to thinking over the Word of God. Now, you've got to think about it in this way. Here's an analogy for you. When you're reading your Bible, that's like taking a stick and putting it on in the fire pit. Have you ever made a fire, outdoor fire? You have to go out and you have to gather up all these sticks to put on the fire, right? You read your Bible, you listen to a sermon. What you're doing is you're going out and getting sticks of truth and you're putting them in the fire pit of your life. And you fill that thing up and you get the big truths. And you fill it all up. And what happens is some of us live our whole lives and we have a fire pit full of theology, full of truth. But it doesn't keep you warm. Why? Because you haven't lit the fire. Biblical meditation and prayer is like the match. It's the bridge between knowing and doing. It's the match. When you start thinking about truth, as you muse, the fire will burn. And so you've got to think, well, I woke up today. I was musing this morning and it didn't come. Well, you've got to keep musing. Right? You've got to keep thinking. You've got to keep doing what God calls you to do, even though your affections are not there yet. But as you do what God calls you to do, as you throw on those logs on the fire of your inner man, the truth, you're just heaping logs upon the pyre. And as John Piper said, you have to heed until the fire. Right? You do that and you wait. And you pray, you meditate, you ask the Lord to help you feel what you believe. What's not there today? Okay. He told me there would be hard days. There's another hard day. I'm going to be faithful and God will bring what he promises. As you give yourself to obey, as you give yourself to renewed thinking according to Scripture, your life will be transformed. And you'll find that the low days don't come as much. Or when they do, uh, you know how to get out of them. Because you just climb the ladder of 2 Timothy 2, 1-7, and then you find the joy that the Apostle Paul had. And that's, of course, our target. right? We want to live joyful lives of service to the Lord. All right, and that's our prayer for you guys.
Uh, we want to all do this together. And we're all on our way there. Uh, we're all moving slower than we want to move. But the Lord uh, has us, as Dan Kirk says, we are in the Lord's place, moving at the Lord's pace. All right, let's pray. Father, you are a good, gracious God, and you do all things well. And we trust you, Father. We trust that your way is the best way. And so, Lord, we ask that as we live our lives, the lives that you've entrusted to us, and as we try to be faithful to do the ministries you've given us to do, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember these truths so that our vitality would be sustained and that we would live um, faithful lives with as little regret as we can muster. And Lord, that you would be pleased with all that we give for you. Lord, we also pray specifically for those saints in our body who are down right now. Uh, Lord, they are on their back, spiritually speaking. Lord, we pray that you would cause these truths from your word to come to them and help them to be renewed and to see uh, the change in their hearts that you require. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to step up, to believe your word, to be transformed by the renewing of their mind and to follow faithfully your instructions. And Lord, above all things, Lord, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on his grace, and may we be fueled and encouraged by the promises of your word to be your kind of people. And Father, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.